on July 12, 2023, National Polygamy Advocate Mark Hinkle shares what I had to learn and grow in the 2000s. Hello, my friends, supporters, listeners, and sharers. Last week, in the episode number 277 of July 5, 2023, of this National Polygamy Advocate podcast, I started a series of episodes to walk us through the history of the movement of both Christian polygamy and of UCAP, Unrelated Consenting Adult Polygamy, in terms of what I myself had to learn and to grow throughout each of these past decades. In last week's episode number 277 of July 5, 2023, I shared the decade of the 1990s. In this week's current episode, number 278, of July 12, 2023, I will share what I had to learn and to grow in the next decade, the 2000s. The beginning of the 2000s seemed to offer a lot of hope. It was a new decade, a new century, and even a new millennium. We had survived the imagined worldwide scare of the possible threat of Y2K. The Y2K bug scared the world with the thought that all computers would fail throughout society due to the perilous issue of computing years as going from 99 to 00 without the century numbers used of 19 to 20. Does not compute, does not compute, was the expected error of Y2K. By the way, for those who don't know, Y2K is short for year 2000, as K is often used to represent thousand. Ironically, though, in computer talk, an actual K usually stands for 1024, which is 2 to the 10th power, or 2 times 2 times 2 times 2, etc., until you have said 2 10 times in that multiplication. 2 to the 10th exponential power equals 1,024. It does not equal only 1,000. The number 2 matters because computer code is written in binary of 1s and zeros. So in binary, a K is not 1,000. It is 1,024 because it is 2 to the 10th power or 10 steps of doubling. 2, 4, 8, 16, 32, 64, 128, 256, 512, 1024. A K is not a thousand, it is a thousand twenty-four. And not only that, are you ready for this? <laughs> 2K should be 2 times K, which would be 2 to the 11th exponent power. That's because when you double 1024, you get 2048. So we can further chuckle that a Y2K year 2 times 1024 should mean the year 2048. <laughs> now in the middle of 2023, we're still not even halfway there between 2000 and 2048. Oh well. <laughs> Notwithstanding all that math error and the hilarious irony of the naming of Y2K, one thing became clear as the year 2000 began. In January, then February, 
and then March, etc. We all survived. Yup. We all lived to tell the story. And here we are today. The world did not collapse. <laughs> Mind you, a year and a half later, on September 11, 2001, the world, and especially U.S. citizens, did experience the trauma and terror of 9-11. September 11, 2001. That terrifying event introduced a whole different matter of tyranny, but that's a whole other story. For our movement, though, the 2000s, the new decade, the new century, the new millennium, did start with us having lots of hope. The standard of love not force had successfully begun to bring healing to some marriages of forced polygamists, when some of the cruel husbands had repented with sincere humility, then decided to redirect themselves to apply the standard to refuse to force polygamy on their first wives, so that their wives and their marriages could begin to stop hurting such wives so cruelly. As well, regular everyday Christians in this very new young movement felt assured again that the very idea of Christian polygamy was indeed and only a loving-kind, Christ-like, benevolent concept, making it acceptable for new Christians to be more easily willing to embrace the cause as truth and love, too. Twenty-three days before the terror of the tragedy of 9-11, however, we had our first official Polygamy Day on August 19, 2001. Every year afterward, we kept celebrating on that day, August 19. Eventually, we got the Polygamy Day trademark officially registered on June 26, 2007. For that, I certainly had much to learn and to grow on how to proceed through that legal trademark process. And now, here we are in 2023, with over two decades of Polygamy Day annual celebrations! Anyway, the end of the 1990s also brought what was then being called Web 2.0. In the early 2000s, websites were transforming from what was called static design to dynamic design. A static web page was usually written in basic HTML code, the acronym for Hypertext Markup Language. Each HTML web page of a website was a standalone file that only displayed the same one thing, whatever it was initially coded to display, when someone surfed to it. A dynamic web page, based on the then-new technologies, was able to serve up different resulting displays based on different variables sent to the file. Originally, JavaScript was added inside HTML pages. Then it expanded to other direct technologies from Java to Perl scripts and on to Microsoft's ASP files, the public domain coding of PHP files, and eventually to XML. There are many others, too, but I won't bore you by going more deeply into this digression. <laughs> I said all that to say this, though. Web 2.0 changed how we use the Internet, both as makers of websites and as surfers of websites. So I had to learn how to use these then-new technologies in order to get our message out. During this same time, as Love Not Force was spreading, 
the media started seeking to know more about this new movement called Christian polygamy that was not Mormon, and that was definitely both loving and pro-woman. As that happened, as our movement grew, supporters in our movement knew and said that we needed differing websites to give answers to specific niches or questions that the rest of the world would ask us. So, web hosted by the servers of the truthbearer.org organization, we created biblicalpolygamy.com, propolygamy.com, propolygamy.net, christianpolygamy.info, polygamyday.com, and others, each addressing specific purposes when people had questions about our movement. Another thing happened, too. It's called Google. The then-new young search engine professed to live by its founder's slogan, Don't be evil. Before Google, websites could be found by being listed in topical directories or by submitting URLs of web pages to any of the top 15 different search engines. With that honest competition, the Internet was truly free then. And we could easily be found on the Internet. Google came along and began its AdWords system. With that system, a website admin could make a bid of a minimum of five cents to appear in search engine queries. If others wanted to be found in those search queries, they could bid up the price until the fair market price could be found, as long as the bidders were honestly valid for the search queries being bidden. Google's AdWords was in competition with another ad company called Overture. That company would do likewise, but they would deliver ads for multiple search engines. The search engine Yahoo bought Overture and eventually limited it. Soon, there was only competition between Google and Yahoo. Over time, Google beat Yahoo, leaving Google to become a predatory monopolist. Google began raising minimum prices, even on search queries in which no one else was bidding. The monopolist Google got out of hand. So much for, don't be evil. But that is another story too. Back to the early 2000s. It was possible to be found web searching, even using the honest price bidding of Google's AdWords and Yahoo's Overture, when the systems were honest. In any event, what this reveals is that I had to learn and to grow to understand this new system of search queries too. I also had to learn how to read, study, and interpret important court cases from the state court decisions such as the Goodridge v. Department of Public Health case in Massachusetts in 2003 and the Utah v. Home case in Utah in 2006 as well as Supreme Court decisions such as Lawrence v. Texas, Gonzalez v. Ocentro Espirita, and more. As more and more media corporations sought me out for interviews, I surely had to be intellectually capable of rationally answering questions about such important court cases in terms of how they applied to our movement. I also had to learn how to write op-eds, special reports, and press releases. In 2005, I appeared on The 700 Club, the famous TV show of Pat Robertson, known to most evangelical Christians. 
My appearance on that show got such renowned Christian leadership to begrudgingly acknowledge that Christian polygamy is comprised of evangelical Christians, i.e., not lustful, not lascivious, not woman-haters, not Mormons, not Muslims, but actual Bible-based Christians. The victory was amazing. It was confirmed the two words Christian and polygamy were proven to no longer be a supposed contradiction in terms. With the successful birth, and then at that time adolescence, of the young modern Christian polygamy movement, it then became possible for the larger overall movement of UCAP, Unrelated Consenting Adult Polygamy, of any form, as long as that form kept to the standard of Love Not Force. Because I was coming first from a Christian, non-Mormon paradigm, I could not be discredited as the media and anti-polygamists often would otherwise try to do. I could answer arguments that non-Christian pro-polygamists could not. Hence, I was able to do what no one else could do. That meant that I further had to learn and to grow on how to speak for the even larger movement of UCAP, Unrelated Consenting Adult Polygamy. I became the exclusive National Polygamy Advocate. That also included having to learn how to work with a publicist and how to effectively be a media talent to get on shows and to spread the word professionally and persuasively. Having to learn how to do that became even more necessary when HBO began their new fiction TV show called Big Love about a non-criminal Mormon polygamous family starting in March 2006. The media went into a frenzy about this first-of-its-kind of show on the topic of non-criminal polygamists for entertainment. And it was indeed vital that I had, fortunately, already so learned and grown how to serve that role when the media went into the later frenzy after the raid of Warren Jeff's cult of FLDS in April 2008. Someone had to stand up and say, that normal, everyday, pro-polygamous families in UCAP, UCAP, Unrelated Consenting Adult Polygamy, have nothing to do with that criminal, his cult, or its ideas. By the end of the 2000s, Yahoo had started a thing called Yahoo Groups, and a new company called Facebook had started a so-called social network site that pretended to help people connect with others. Yahoo groups indirectly threatened the ability for activists of any movement to raise funds through walled gardens, as it made Hiru wannabes think they could start their own free groups, and that the fight for freedom should be free. Well, not really. But that's another separate story, too. At about the same time, Facebook lied to the millions of small businesses who had given Facebook millions of unpaid free advertising when the small businesses put Like Us on Facebook on their physical street sign reader boards across the world. They put Facebook on the map. Everywhere you physically went, shops and stores had been duped into saying Like Us on Facebook on their street signs. On December 2, 2009, the so-called social network turned off all privacy settings on all accounts. Suddenly, Every polygamy activist, 
every supporter, and every media contact, and other private people who had liked me on Facebook as the National Polygamy Advocate, were all made public to the world instantly. This was horrifying, and it was dangerous to our very lives. I had to immediately create a page instead of a profile, notify every one of my Facebook friends and fans, and then delete every contact on my profile, just to protect their privacy. The page was not able to recover as many contacts who had been lost from the profile. Facebook had thoroughly betrayed the privacy of any movement of activists, including our movement. I was even later interviewed by an author who wrote a book about this privacy invasion. Facebook would later stop letting pages even reach two out of every 100 fans who liked their pages from even seeing their posts. Solidifying Facebook's utter betrayal of all the small businesses, this act was seemingly criminal but still legal. And it proved that Facebook is another corporation to be willing to do only evil. I then realized that, even as I was always protective of the supporters of our movement, I had to learn and to grow to become almost obsessed with protecting the privacy of anyone who supports our cause and movement. Your privacy absolutely matters to me. And so, looking back on the 2000s, a decade that had begun with so much hope and had been filled with so many successful advances, the 2000s ended with some darker threats to the movement's freedom to still be able to positively proceed forward as quickly as the last decade had been. Even so, from all of this, you can now perceive, in the 2000s, I again had much to learn and to grow. I had to be a trademark mini-expert, a web hosting server owner in Web 2.0, an ever-changing search engine expert, a writer and rhetorician, a media talking head, a legal expert while not an attorney and able to grow beyond serving Christian polygamy to also becoming the overall national polygamy advocate. That was just the second decade of all of what I would also have to learn and grow over the decades. I will share more about that, specifically the decade of the 2010s, in the next coming episode, number 279. Stay tuned. And again till then, thank you for celebrating, supporting, listening to, and sharing the National Polygamy Advocate Podcast. Mark Henkel is National Polygamy Advocate, presenting polygamy to the public since 1994. NationalPolygamyAdvocate.com